0: Hello, and welcome to the Writers and Illustrators of the Future podcast. This is John Goodwin, your host. This podcast is dedicated to the aspiring writer or artist, and will provide inspiration and tips from top professionals in the field, along with contest winners and a few surprise guests. Today, we are speaking with one of those surprise guests, Stephen Sears. Stephen Sears is an American writer and producer primarily working in television. He is perhaps best known for writing and co-executive producing the popular series, Xena, Warrior Princess, as well as a subsequent creation, Sheena, based on the comic book of the same name. You also did Swamp Thing, and probably a bunch more that I'm not even saying, but um, anyway, that's amazing. Welcome, Stephen. Thank
1: you. Thank you. I I, I like that you introduced me as the surprise guest, so surprise! It's Steve. (laughs) So, um, we met each other,
0: was it through... The Winter twi- How do we meet each other? I'm just trying to remember that. It's been some uh, time. Well,
1: it was, a, um, it was a small bar in Calcutta. The room was dark. <laughs> the music was waft. No, it was, uh, it was um, a combination of people, but notably uh, Kevin J. Anderson. Oh, Kevin Anderson. That's right. Yes. Yeah, Kevin and I have known each other for, gosh, 20-something years. We actually met at a convention um, where literally um, when they did the opening and all the guests special appearing people were on stage. We outnumbered the people in the audience. It was just it was, <laughs> it was unfortunately a very badly run convention, but Kevin and Rebecca, his wife, yeah um we just hit it off and we remained friends and obviously we're both uh, all three of us very creative people interested in the literary arts and um, friendship has grown. We worked on projects together, but anyway that's um that's how we got to know each other because Kevin was the first one to tell me about Writers of the Future, and that got me excited.
0: And we met at a, um, an awards ceremony. He, you were his guest, and we met you there at the awards ceremony, I think it was. That's right. Yep. Yeah. That's where it was, yeah. Because we were on the list, and, and someone said, who's Stephen Sears? And we looked at you up, and oh my golly. <laughs> <laughs> oh my golly. So um, <laughs> it's been a great friendship since then, too. So it's, it's very, very good that we got to know you. Now, you've Obviously, in the '80s and '90s, were very well known with a lot of the, your projects. But how did you get into uh, television screenwriting? Because it's—I think it's a very fascinating story how you went from being um, a uh, high school dropout and going to Calcutta <laughs> to actually.
1: <laughs> oh my! Hey, you're using them against me. Okay, great. <laughs> Yes, yes, it was a long, arduous road. Um, I'll try. I will try to give the shortened version of this. Well, Unless all right. Anybody who has heard me talk, I, I do tend to be a bit verbose. Um, well, first thing is that um, to understand myself and where I'm coming from, um, I'm a military brat. So my dad was in the service for 23 years, and every three years we moved to a different location. When he retired, uh, we retired to a small town in St. August, er, Augustine, Florida. Uh, that was my what I now call my hometown. And I was in junior high school at the time. And um, what happened then is I got interested in acting. Uh, there was a local play, a seasonal play called Cross and Sword, which was the story of the founding of Florida. And so I decided to audition. I got the role. I was like 12 or 13 years old. And from that point on, I just was fascinated with the theater and performance and entertainment. So when I graduated high school, after doing all the high school plays, being the president of the drama club, doing regional theater, and I went to college, it was obvious my, my major was definitely going to be medicine. Um, <laughs> That's true. When my dad had retired from the military, even though he was a frontline soldier, um, he went into hospital administration, and I liked science. And so I thought, oh, this is great. I will do that because, you know, I want to make some money. Well, um, that worked out until Chemistry 101 knocked me into liberal arts because I got a C in chemistry, and you can't go pre-med with a C in chemistry. And so I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do with my future, and there was an event that happened at the time dealing with a movie that had come out, and the movie was called The Goodbye Girl, and Richard Dreyfuss starred in it. And people who had seen it, my friends, were saying, oh, he's playing you. You should go see it. So I went and saw it. And, yeah, I saw a lot of similarities between the character. So he won an Academy Award for that role. And I remember, you know, i was still at college. I didn't know what I wanted my major to be. And I remember thinking to myself, I was walking to the the student union, and I thought to myself, you know, of course he would win an award like that. But only special people win those things. And I literally stopped right in my tracks. And I thought to myself, oh, my God, if he had felt that way, he never would have gotten near it. And that was the moment I decided I'm going to follow my heart. I'm going to do what I what I want to do. I'm going to be an actor. That was my plan. I'm going to go uh, transfer to a school, uh, Florida State, which had a great theater department. And I also had to call my dad and tell him that I was going to be an actor and not a doctor. Now, a lot of people who have heard me talk about this have heard this story because it doesn't change. It, it is what happened. Uh, when I called my dad and told him, I said, I'm not going to be a doctor, I'm going to be an actor, my dad immediately said, well, you've always loved it, son, go and do it. And so I did. So I got my degree in theater, and then I moved to Los Angeles and to pursue acting. I immediately got a job, uh, what's called an entry-level job into the industry out here, working at a restaurant as a waiter. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> you know that. Um. Yeah. Now, while I was there, I met this guy named Bert Pearl, and he and I became best friends. Okay, so I'll uh, put Bert on the back burner just for a moment. So in the meantime, I'm taking acting classes, and I'm meeting casting directors who are at these classes. And I got to know them fairly well. I, I, my attitude is I'm more interested in you than I am in selling myself. So a lot of the barriers came down, and I became friendly with them. And um, one of the things I found out from them, just by listening to their talking about their jobs, was that um, they, were, they saw a lot of actors who came in and just did the same material for auditions. Their cold auditions were almost always something from a Neil Simon play, very popular at the time. And uh, they were tired of it. They said, we can, we can mouth the words along with them. So I thought, well, you know what? I'm going to start writing my own audition scenes. So I started writing these little three-page, three-minute audition scenes to be done in cold auditions. Now, there was a, a showcase that was coming up and a partner, um, this woman and I, decided we were going to partner together and do one of my scenes at this showcase. Now, at a showcase, basically, actors will pay to be a part of this showcase. There'll be like maybe seven performances that night, and there's an um, audience that's invited of people in the industry. It's all for networking. So there's agents, there's casting directors, et cetera. Um, you probably won't even meet uh, the other people who are appearing on stage. You're just paying for the, the time. So for the night of the showcase, I showed up and I looked at the program bill, and five of the scenes being done out of seven were ones I had written. What had happened is my scenes were being passed around at acting classes. People were enjoying them. So afterwards, one of the casting directors asked me if I had written those scenes, and I said yes, and she said, you should seriously think about writing. And my first reaction was, I, I can't do that. That's a lot of typing. That's, I'm not a writer. It's, what, what are writers? What, are, what a creature is a writer? And so that night, just for the heck of it, I pulled out a script that I had. Um, not that I'd written, but I'd, I'd acquired. And I went through it and very naively thought, oh, it's a whole bunch of little three-page scenes just kind of in order. So I thought, I'm going to write a script just for the fun of it. And I've said this many times, and I'm very proud of it. In two days, I wrote the worst script that has ever been written in the history of mankind. It was horrible. It really was. But I, I just so loved doing it. The characters were in my head. I could set everything up. I could play off jokes. I could play with people's emotions. I loved it. And I wanted to continue doing it. Now, back to Bert. So Bert and I, as best friends, uh, we had a lot of common interests. And it turned out he also had an interest in scripts. And so he and I decided that just for the fun of it, we would start writing scripts. Now, I want to I interject right here that at no point in this story have I said that I wanted to be a writer. right? Because I didn't. I had no intention of being a writer. None whatsoever. It even, didn't even occur to me. But this was fun. So Bert and I started writing these, um, these scripts. These were little uh, speculative scripts. We would see a television episode and write an episode of an existing series, but only for the fun of it. All right, so now a new series comes on the air. In 1983, it was a series called Riptide, about three detectives who live on a boat. Two of them hunky guys, one of them kind of a computer geek. And I watched the pilot, and I liked it. And um, I told Bert, I said, let's write that one for the fun of it. So one of the things I also did back then was I would call the production offices and ask them if they had writer's guides. Some offices, some shows have writer's guides. They're intended to be given out to freelance writers so they'll know how to write the show. Um, Sometimes they don't have them. I would call up and a few times they would hang up on me. Sometimes they would send me one. Most of the time they didn't. But what the heck, why not try? So I called and um, I got put through to this woman who worked in the Riptide offices And I asked her if they had a writer's guide. And she said, no. She goes, but have you seen the show? It was brand new. And I said, oh, I love the show. And she goes, oh, really? And then we just started talking. And most of what we talked about had nothing to do with the show. You know, it's like, oh, you know, I've been out here for a couple of years. Where are you from? From Florida. Oh, my gosh, my relatives live in Florida. We just were chatting. So at the end of this chat, she said, um, she goes, so you and your friend, have you written any scripts? And I said, oh, we've written a few for the fun of it. And she said, well, I know the producers of Riptide are always looking for writers. So if you have an agent, you know, have them send them over. You never know. And I went, sure. And um, we got off the phone, and I did not get her name. She didn't get my name. I had no idea. This was just a pleasant conversation. So I called this guy I knew who was an agent, and I described the conversation. And he said, oh, sure, I'll send a couple over to you. I'll send a couple of scripts of yours over there. What the heck? So about two months later, I get a call from the story editor of Riptide, uh, Tom Blumquist. And he said, why don't you just come in? We just want to meet you. And Bert and I were like, cool. Okay, this kind of sounds like fun. So Bert and I went over to see Tom, and he introduced us to the um, executive producer of the show, Babs Grahowski. So we just chatted and talked and had a great time. These were two awesome people. Now, I am somebody who loves watching people who are passionate about something doing that something that's how i learn i learned to play golf by watching people who are passionate about golf i didn't learn so much from books although i really value the education that comes from books i want to know what that feels like it's a zen thing so here i am in a room both Bert and i in this room with two people who are passionate about storytelling and writing we we loved it so tom uh, at a certain point said have you guys even thought about riptide episodes and since Bert and I were going to write one, we said, oh, yeah, we had some ideas. And we laid out like five ideas. Uh, two, of them, they, um, two of them they weren't interested in. Three of them they thought were interesting. And they said, you know, why don't you come back in a couple of weeks and have those beaten out? Uh, and, yes, ladies and gentlemen, this is the short version. Um, so <laughs> a couple of weeks later, Bert and I had come back with two of the stories kind of beaten out in a paragraph form and then a brand new idea. Because one of the three we couldn't figure out, but we came up with a third idea. And the third idea actually dealt with where did the boat come from that they lived with. So Babs and Tom liked that idea. And they said, why don't you guys write up an outline? Okay, fine. So we literally wrote up like a a high school outline like you would do. Um, Later on, we found out that was called a beat sheet. We didn't know it at the time. So we wrote that up, came back and met them. And now keep in mind, Bert and I still thought that the show must be on hiatus. And we were just they just liked us and we thought this is a great way for us to learn. So for about 45 minutes in that meeting, Tom and Babs took our outline and tore it apart and put it back together. And just, it was brilliant and we loved watching it because it was just like, this is what they do. This is so awesome. So at the end of that meeting, Tom turned to me and he said, I need your, uh, the name of your agent for business affairs. And I, I looked at him and I in shock and I said, did we get an assignment? And he said, well, you guys got the assignment two weeks ago. And Bert and I were, were so, literally so shocked when we walked out, Bert turned to me and he said, are we getting paid for this? <laughs> and I said, I, I think so. I think they pay writers. And he goes, how much? And I said, well, you know, hopefully it's like $500. Cause you know, we got to split it. And at that time for a one hour script, it was $15,000. <laughs> So that became our first sale. But here's the thing. We wrote um, the first draft of that script as freelancers, turned it in um, to them. Uh, I got a call on Monday on my message machine, and I still have the cassette tape from that old message machine. Tom was called, and he said he read the script and really loved it. And he said, I know that um, the producers of Hardcastle and McCormick and the A-Team are looking for writers. We're going to give your names to them. And so two days later on Wednesday, Babs Krahowski, the exec producer, called. And um, she, there's a funny story around how she called because she called me and woke me up and I wasn't even aware of what she was saying. But basically what she said was uh, that she had given the script to the owner of the company, who was Stephen J. Cannell. And Steve Cannell, if you don't recognize the name, he co-created the A-team. He co-created Rockford Files. I mean, he was the number one, um, arguably the number one. I'm sure Aaron Spelling would disagree. Uh, and Glenn Larson, I know, would definitely disagree. But in the 80s, he was like the boutique, he was boutique production company. It was like if you could get into there, it was like you just you went right to the top. So Steve had read the script. And Babs said, Steve only had one note in your entire script. So Tom and I were wondering if you guys want to come down here, get an office, and work with us full-time on our shows. Now, I haven't stopped working since, and that was in 1984. Wow. Um, The most amazing thing to take out of that for people, I think, um, is that from the moment I wrote that extremely horrible script to the moment I was standing in my own writer's office was less than a year from a standing start of not intending to be a writer. That's the closest to an overnight success you're gonna hear in this business. But there's a lot more to it to learn from that. I I had so many things that fell in my favor and I had an incredible writing partner, my best friend at the time, and um, we had our own passion and we matched the passions of the people we were talking to. We also didn't give them a reason to push us back because most people do that. They're trying to sell themselves so much that people put up walls, what we, I think what helped us the most is that everybody recognized that we truly truly were storytellers who just loved the process and loved being creative and were not overtaken by our own egos or our own pride, but anyway, so that is the short version of uh, of how I broke in
0: wow that's I mean that 's an amazing story we 've discussed it before, and I think it's just, it's just with the scope of what we are talking about here on this on this podcast, I think it's really important that people understand, you know, other people's their their curves that you know, they went through. What was their arc from beginning to success or, mm-hmm. you know, some people, you know, have experienced all types of of various things and and um you know the people have started and they quit and they start again. Um right. so I think this is important and also I think the biggest takeaway for me listening to you just now is you're all about this story, not about your ego.
1: Yes, that is, and that's an important thing. I, um, you know, I, I, I told my wife recently. Um, I said, if I ever have an autobiography, I'm going to. Um, the, the title is going to be. Well, I didn't see that coming, uh, <laughs> because so much of my life has been like that. And I try to look back and say, really, what was the connective tissue? And what you just mentioned um, was a major part of it. Now, it's not that I don't have an ego; I have one. It's not that I don't have pride. I have a lot of pride, especially in my own work, but I don't feel the need to be offended by other people's talents or their abilities. I find other people to be fascinating. The more I learn from other people, the better a person I am and a better writer um, I am. Otherwise, you know, uh, some of my friends are major people in the industry, and I wouldn't have those people as friends if if I had that attitude. Right. So, um. Uh, the interesting thing about the, the that first phone call that I made, I realized the reason that that phone call was successful was because I didn't call up trying to sell myself. I called up because I wanted knowledge. I asked that woman, you know, I want knowledge. Do you have a writer's guide? I want to learn. Mm-hmm. And there are so many people in not just in my industry, but in so many other creative industries who honestly would love to think of themselves as being a mentor somehow to where they help somebody else. They want that nice feeling. And I realized my attitude invited that. And by the way, as I said, I didn't get that woman's name. Um, it took me 20 something years before I figured out who that woman was. Cause I was kind of like, I, whoever that was, I'm going to thank her. I'm going to buy her a car. <laughs> Turned out, um, her name was Kendall and she ended up being my assistant when I was working at Cannell. Wow. Just by luck. I know, just by luck. Didn't figure that out for decades. Did she like her car? <laughs> Fortunately, Kendall was fairly well off. She didn't need my car. Okay.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so, um, when I do these interviews for the writers of the future, the whole purpose and the whole reason why it was originally created by Owen Hubbard was to provide a helping hand for the aspiring writer, and then five years later for the, for the aspiring artist. And what you have to contribute here, I think, is, an, is an important for people to get. And that's something that the contest itself is very much, um, I think, in tune with, because it's, the, by the very nature, it's, it's blind judging, so that all the judges ever see is a number associated with the work. So it is all about the quality of the work and the fact of science fiction and fantasy, alternate history, uh, dark fantasy. And nothing else. It's not about personality. And so we've got all types of personalities connected with the contest. But everybody shares in common that they resonate with that whole concept of quality of of storytelling and the ability to, to do even better storytelling. And I think that's what, you know, one of the things you're communicating is, is I think is really important for people to, as a takeaway to, to be able to understand.
1: Yeah. One thing I, I actually really liked about um, and still like about Writers of the Future Uh, writers and illustrators of the future i want to make sure i say that because people forget the illustrator side of it and how incredibly wonderful those the work that they have done Mm -hmm. um if anybody if you if anybody goes out and buys one of the writers of the um, future notice that the title says writers and illustrators of the future because when you go through it you're going to see those illustrations and you link them to stories um they work together um, but one of the things that I really liked about the writer's aspect of it is the fact that it is almost a double blind, the way you assess talent. Um, I think it was Kevin I was talking to and I made a comment, I made a joke. I said, I should write up a story and submit it. But pro- problem is like a third of the judges know me. And Kevin corrected me. He says, we don't know who you are. He goes, you know, and he goes through like a, a series and he goes, you know, you are judged strictly on your talent. And then I realized that scared me even more. <laughs> so, <laughs> <laughs> I said, "Well, fortunately, I'm not going to submit right now." Thank you very much. <laughs> yes. Well,
0: it's interesting. When we first started the contest, it was I think 300 and some odd entries that first year back in when it was announced in '83, and then we published the first book in '85, and now we get um, thousands of entries a quarter between both contests. It's, wow. So wow. And and I see now because I get the the Google alerts on um, Writers of the Future. And the number of people that have Writers of the Future in their resumes—that I was a finalist, or that one, that one newspaper, or that one, um, leading cool article I, I forwarded to you—do you know this? uh right. this screenwriter, uh-huh. where he's That's listed he's his, right as one of his uh, credits is the fact he was a finalist in Writers of the Future. Mm-hmm. Um, we see that more and more because after thirty-seven years, it is so gone beyond any shadow of a doubt as to. What a person is if they win, or even now are a finalist, because it's strictly on merit. There is no incestuousness connected with this contest.
1: Yeah, no, and, and, the, and the bar is pretty high. That's, the, that's another thing I learned the first time I read um, uh, one of the collections. Uh, and I'll be honest with you, I read the collection with kind of an attitude. I kind of thought, well, let's see, you know, there are so many things out there, so many contests out there that are really honestly just scams. And I said, I'm just going to take a look and see what, what it is that they're actually you know, printing here. And I, was, um, I, I, you know, I, I didn't, did not mean for this to be a commercial for uh, writers and illustrators of the future, although <laughs> – It works welcome, for me. It that works <laughs> for you. Um, I was blown away. I really was. Um, some of the stories that I have read have been what you would normally think is very um, – not formulaic, but they laid out as you would expect them to except the characters are so incredibly fun and Mm -hmm. delightful. And I got to tell you, the, um, was it the last book or the one before there was the, um, Oh gosh, I wish I could remember the title of it. I've got to think of this, the story, um, about the religious order that they were having a problem translating the words with the, um, uh, with the aliens they were trying to communicate with.
0: Yeah. That's in the volume 36. And, um, That was the one that just came out, and that uh, story was...
1: What's the title of that one? Please tell me, because I can't believe I forgot. Uh,
0: It was um, A Word That Means Everything by Andy Dibble. By Andy Dibble. Yes.
1: And that one, I had to read the first two pages three times, because the way that world was set up, and the way... I mean, it, it goes right to the core of understanding... And, and, and all, and it's the title, the title has it. It's a word. It's like, how do you look at a word? What does it mean to you? And, um, that was one that I just kind of, wow. Okay. I'm, I'm very cerebral, but that one just blew my mind.
0: Yeah. We've had, um, there was one story one year, um, by Scott, it was a few years ago that every sentence had five words and it was, it, it was a real challenge to do that, but he did it, um. And so some people will go after and do things, but there's never like, okay, this is the theme of this book is blah. It's not. It's just, I mean, this current book you talked about there, you have that one, a word that means everything. And then in the last story, Automated Every Man Migrant Theater.
1: Yes. 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 Another one. That was another good one. Yes. That's right. It's just a
0: total different, like, wow, how do they get those ideas? It's just, I'm always amazed because I've been doing this for quite some time Mm -hmm. and- The stories get better and better, and at this point now, we're in in a condition where several of our judges are past winners or people that um, proed out, meaning they became a professional writer before they won the the story uh, contest, but like Rob Sawyer from Canada, I mean, he entered several times. Uh, Dean Wesley Smith, he was the first person that walked across the stage to be awarded 37 years ago, and he's written hundreds of books. Um, and then we have, like right now, Todd McCaffrey is one of our judges, but his mom, Ann McCaffrey, was a judge as right. of the second year. Uh, Todd. Yeah. And um, we've also got now Brian Herbert, his dad, Frank Herbert, the author of right. Dune. He was a judge until he passed mm-hmm. away. Yeah. So we've got a lot of uh, Orson Scott Card, who's Ender's Game. But the main thing and about
1: to, to, to clarify, just Brian has not passed away. <laughs> when you say you were saying Frank Her- Brian's Brian Herbert and Frank Herbert's father, then you said he passed away. I just want to clarify to everybody: Brian has not passed away. Right, exactly. <laughs> king. Okay. Thank you.
0: Yes, <laughs> but several of the of our current judges now were winners, um, like Eric Flint, um, who's a multiple mm-hmm. New York Times bestseller with the 1632 series, David Farland, um, who's written a lot of uh, several New York Times bestsellers. I love Dave. Yeah, Sean Williams is a winner. He's like one of the the biggest selling of science fiction writers in Australia. And then we have still our our original one of our original founding judges, Robert Silverberg, Bob Silverberg. He was from the from the very beginning, mm-hmm. um, as was uh, Gregory Benford. He's been a judge also since the yes. beginning. But anyway, there's a lot of people, and it's just the integrity of the contest has never been in doubt. And it's, it was one thing that was originally set up for that purpose. And so again. With what you're talking about on your desire to really just the story to learn and mm-hmm. and all these judges here, here are very much in tune with that that same thing of like they want to work with all the winners and every year we bring out the twelve writer winners and twelve artist winners and they are given a week long workshop on just let them just soak it in and become great friends and they're treated as as peers as equals. And right. that's and that's something I think is really, really important. And like your basic attitude is also really, you know, really consummate with, I don't even
1: know if that's the right word, but anyway, it really much yeah. al- aligns yeah. with that. Well, I mean, for me, one of the things that, um, there are so many walls up in the creative industries because nobody re- really can define how it works. Uh-huh. Uh, not just authors, but also in television, film, you know, any of the creative areas uh, art is subjective, as they say. And mm-hmm. in, in television and screenwriting, writing is really more of a craft that can be artistic. But when you're talking about novels and you're talking about illustrations, obviously, you're, you're, the, the actual creator is closer to the, to the audience. And um, what I find with a lot of um, people uh, is that they're being, they're being pummeled by the numbers game. There are so many people out there who are creative or aren't and don't know that they're not creative. And, and I want to put a caveat there. I think everybody has a creative spirit. It's how they're able to get that across to, uh, to others. And in my business, you've got hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of people trying to get in, and they're trying to storm the castle walls. And we don't know which ones are actually the ones we can work with or not. So um, what I benefited from when I broke in was that Bert and I happened to encounter The right people who now we had the right attitude as i as i said but we encountered the people who said let's get rid of all those walls let's just talk like like let's get inside of that creative bouncy room of of ideas and jump around and play um writers of the future and illustrators of the future it does a very similar thing it at least allows access to a protected environment where people can actually create their own networks they're not having to worry so much about the competition against each other. They're able to focus much more on the fun and passion of what they're doing. So yeah, it, there's a lot of mirrors in not just my story, but other stories I know of people who have managed to break into the industry, any, any creative industry. That's a, that's a good point.
0: And the other thing, too, I think is really important, which by having people entering the, this contest over and over again, persistence there's a definite uh, value to being able to, per- to want to persist. The person that writes his novel and it doesn't sell, like, okay, I tried that and it didn't work. So I'm going to move on now. It, it yeah. requires, like Brandon Sanderson had written, I think, six, at least six novels before he sold his first one. And even then he was ready to give up. From what he told mm-hmm. me, he's not one of our judges, but he was ready to give up. When he received a uh, certificate from Rise to Future as an honorable mention, realizing, okay, mm-hmm. it's not hopeless and I'm going to keep on persisting, and he did.
1: Well... Yeah, that's the, every success story you hear about. Every time you see an interview with somebody who is successful, they will usually get asked, what is, what is the one piece of advice you give to the aspiring person? What is the one word or what is the one suggestion? You will always, always hear some variation of the word perseverance. Mm-hmm. Stay with it. You have to stay with it. If, if you Believe me, there are easier ways to make money. A <laughs> lot easier ways to make money. But if you had that perseverance, you know, the attitude I used to have was um, you're the one that declares when you failed. You're the one who says, okay, today's the day I failed. If you keep going at it and going at it, and let's say that you never end up being the huge financial success, you never get the awards, whatever, you love what you're doing and you keep doing it and then one day you die, guess what? You succeeded because you never failed. You never said to yourself, I'm giving up on my dreams.
0: That's an amazing, that's amazingly good point. And people, this is where the ego kicks in. And uh, they're willing to just say, I'm going to keep on working, working. We have, last year we had a winner that entered 47 times before winning. Another person had been entering since volume two or three quit because he just like totally gave up. And then he found out that he was. He was the story in somebody's discussion about the writer that almost made it but quit. And he realized yeah. it was him, then he got back into it again and he won after twenty-five years, twenty-seven years of of wow. entering the contest. But he won it. Wow. And he's now doing he's he's building up now his his um, books that he's writing. And so it, it's it's an absolutely good point. Now the subject of, because you've read some of the different stories uh, that were uh, written by Elmer Hubbard from the 30s mm-hmm. and 40s, and we've talked about this before um, in other in other talks. What about Mr. Hubbard? Would you say that um, for you is a point of of um, of interest or of, of admiration that you've got for his writing? As, because he's obviously the one that created this contest and I've argued many times in favor of like why he's was one of the ones most suited to be able to have created this contest and provide this Mm -hmm. based on his own history but any your comments from yourself on this
1: well um you know people have to understand that um there are a lot of authors that I um that I you know still living today that I know whom uh, um when I meet them we have a nice chat and then like maybe a minute into the chat, I go, oh my God, I grew up reading your stuff. Oh my gosh. You know, it's, it's like we're having, um, you know, like having breakfast and I'm watching you, you know, balance a, a, a fork of scrambled legs while you're munching on toast. And I realize, holy crap, I remember you know, sneaking off to the library and grabbing your books. So L. Ron Hubbard was one of those people that I had read um, his early pulp stuff before I even knew about him. So mm-hmm. you know, when you're a kid, you're just reading the stories. When I teach classes on writing, or when I'm a guest lecturer, or when I'm working with somebody, I rarely ever do a mentor thing, but when I do it, there's a word that they hear most frequently from me. Um, I should say there are two words that they hear. Uh, The first word they might hear from me is when I say the word fine, as in, oh, that's fine. And what they learn is that that is not the word you want to hear from me. (laughs) Because when I say it's fine, it means that is adequate. That is, okay, it functionally worked. What you want to do is you want to have me react to it with my second word. That's dynamic. I use the word a lot, dynamic, dynamic writing. And dynamic writing means writing that is compelling, it's energetic, it has its own momentum, and more importantly, Dynamic writing isn't just the high points of a plot or the cute phrases from the character. Every bit of your writing has to be dynamic. I described it uh, to somebody recently. I said, when you chart out your story, what I do and what a lot of people do is they will first write down the peaks of their story. You know, he discovers this is his father here. He finds about his dead mother here. He so on and so on and so on. And I said, what a lot of writers do is that they look at those peaks and they say, there's my important writing. And then the connective tissue between just has to get from one point to the other. And my response is, no, the connective tissue has to be just as dynamic as the peaks because it's that path that your reader is following. Now, to take that to L. Ron Hubbard, his early pulp work, you know, people really should study more about what what the pulp market was back in the, in the early days, in the 30s, 40s, 50s. Um, they had to crank out a lot of material. That's why it was called pulp. You know, it was put on fairly bad paper, and it was just cranked out. So we look back through the prism of history, and most of the pulp work that was done back then has disappeared because it wasn't really that good. Uh, it was formulaic. It hit certain points, and it satisfied a certain bit of, uh, of the um, needs for the reader at the time. But through the prism of history, we look back, and those things that stood out are what we're talking about now. So one thing about um, Hubbard's writing, with the pulp writing and with his, and later on, as I discovered with his larger books, his writing is incredibly dynamic. And I mean, from just from the first page, the moment you get past the first page, or I shouldn't say get past it. The moment you start the first page, you are drawn forward. It's like you're, you're leaning over your shoes, trying to keep up with this, because I'm going, to, I'm going to overstate it poetically, but dynamic writing is where you deliciously anticipate every word and sentence because you see it coming towards you and you can't wait till you, you experience it. In early pulp writing, the key for pulp writing was that you wanted to write something that when you got to the end of the chapter, when the reader got to the end of the chapter, I describe it this way, you're late at night, you've got a book, you're reading and you're getting toward the end of the, the chapter that you're reading, and you already said to yourself, i got to go to bed. i got to go to sleep, so I'm just going to finish this chapter. Then you get to the last page of the chapter, and you go, ah, okay, I'm just going to read two more pages of the next chapter because i got to figure out what just happened. And then suddenly you're repeating the process, and the sun comes up. So Hubbard's writing used to do that for me. Uh, when I was still an actor, and Bert and I were, again, just writing scripts for the fun of it. Uh there was a time when I was waiting to move into um, a studio apartment and I had to stay at Bert's place. Uh he had a little studio as well. So I basically slept on a clout, on a couch for about a month. And I don't know how he had the book, but somehow in that apartment was uh, Battlefield Earth. I picked up the book and just thought I would read a couple of pages because it was late at night. Now, you know how thick that book is, right? That is a tome. Yes. I read, I devoured that book and in three days. I just could not <laughs> wait to get back and start reading that book again. Uh, it's still, I look back at that and say, I've never, only one other book has come close to that. And that was Benchley's jaws. I mean, I just went right through that book. So then I started to realize, wait a minute, this is the same guy that I read. You know, I even read the, some of the detective stuff that he had done. And mm-hmm. um, I was actually surprised when you did one of the radio things with the, one of the cowboy premises. I didn't even know about the cowboy genre that he did. Yeah. Um, but that was what really got me into it. And I, it's hard for me to read a tome, it is really hard for me to look at a book and say, that book is really thick. I'm going to pick it up and start reading it. Well, yeah, you know, that's what got me started on that. So, yeah, that was uh, that's dynamic writing right there.
0: That's great. So that's in terms then of of screenwriting or in writing in general. Um, I mean, when you mentioned Kevin Anderson earlier, he said he got exhausted reading Battlefield Earth because it just he kept on turning the page and it was just like, <laughs> you know, yeah. it was just it was a breakneck speed almost throughout the whole book. And he said it just yep. it wore him out reading it because
1: it was just so intense constantly. Right. And also, I'm, I'm a person who um, – I'm very character-oriented. Um, my minor was psychology, sociology, not because I in, intended it to be. It was because I was taking classes for the fun of it. So I love the human mind. I love scenarios that challenge the basic core of humanity. Mm-hmm. And so, I, yeah, same reaction that Kevin had. You, it's almost like you get pummeled. It's like every page is opening up something else. And I, I will tell you, though, one of my frustrations, though, about um, L. Ron Hubbard's writing. Uh, and, I've, and this happened just recently um, with Typewriter in the Sky. You're reading through it, and he sets down a situation or a premise as totally normal within the context of the story. And you realize, holy crap, he could write an entire book about that alone. Yeah. And he doesn't. You know, I mean, he has before, but there are sometimes you just read that and you say, "Oh my gosh, I got to see if he's he's," because that's a great concept. Why didn't he go off with it? Well, he's just like, hey, "I'm just going to throw this on the page and move on." So, yeah, ah, there you go.
0: <laughs> yeah, he said he he learned to write because of writing for the pulps. he said, "Okay, I need a twenty thousand word story, or I need a 30 – He could write, you know, because he submitted. Uh, normally, it was it was first draft, first time out, he'd send it there. And he could write to a story length, and so he said. And so he'd be wow. told by Campbell, "Okay, I need this," or whoever, you know, whatever he was, writing, whether he's writing mystery or adventure or western or science fiction, fantasy, even romance. He did all those genres under I think fifteen different pen names. And um, mm. he said he could just write to a story length, and um, it was just <laughs> amazing. And it was just uh, I eight, can't do that. Yeah, A.E. Van Vogt told a story watching him write once, and this is one of the stories where he had like the – he would just put the paper in the typewriter, and he'd look towards the wall, and he'd start typing. And his creative mm-hmm. his uh, creative speed was 92 words a minute, and he'd just be like creating the story. He was just like – I mean, obviously, he was a very f- fast typist, and he'd just be – he'd see the story play out in front of him against the wall, and he'd be typing the story as it was playing out. And when we released these stories from the Golden Age books uh, about, a, you know, back in 2008, 9, and 10, the uh, when we were doing the proofreading for it, we went back to his original type manuscripts. And this is before there was such a thing as, you know, computers where you could then go back and, and redo it. He, he would take where a story went off and then he'd go back a page and start again and just type through his, his mistake or mu- type through where it was going the wrong way. Because we'd all of a sudden be proofreading all of a sudden we're su- what happened we're just doing it again, and he he'd go back to a, a page earlier in the manuscript and just start from there, and then the story would go off in the direction
1: it was just and he would yeah. just and that's what he would submit you know it was just it was amazing well, I'll tell you that's a good lesson for all people out there who are writers. They're, everybody has their own style mm-hmm. and it is interesting, and in typewriter in the sky, I think I saw a peek into what his own style because he was kind of mocking himself as a writer yeah. while writing about it uh, but I use it's interesting um i overwrite almost everything and then i love going back into the editing process uh people are surprised when i tell them that one of my 60 page scripts probably required 700 pages for me to write one of the things that i do when i'm writing a screenplay especially i mean in television you have established characters but in a screenplay everything's got to come out of your head and I've mentioned this to some new writers who will go, oh my God, is it that difficult? And and the truth is, is this is not the difficult thing. But I said, I'll write 20 to 40 pages of my screenplay. Then I throw it all out and start over again. Because my process is, is I have to allow the environment and more importantly, the characters to come to life. So I got to spend some time with them. Mm -hmm. So I'm not so much worried about a dedication to my actual plot. I have my vague idea of the plot but I start allowing all the characters to start to live and once they are alive in my head once those voices are in my head and everything is starting to make sense I go okay all right let's get to work and then I will start over now mm-hmm. I'll use bits and pieces as I need them but I always end up overwriting because I believe very much that for me when I overwrite I am I have to cut back and by cutting back I'm forced to layer What I have previously written there's a here's a uh, here's a bit of homework for all writers out there and I'm even going to tell you the whole point of the of the um, of the homework and I can guarantee you that after I tell you the point of the homework you're going to say okay I don't need to do that I understand it believe me you have to do it because you don't understand it I'm sorry if you say you understand it no you don't so this is the homework all writers out there I want you to come up with a scenario and um, I'm going to use screenplay terms but this applies also for prose writing you are going to have 5 characters and they are going to be in a certain situation and you're going to write 10 pages. And you're going to I mean dedicate yourself to this. Make this this is a this is a classroom learning experience. In those 10 pages, those 5 characters all have to have definitive backgrounds and characteristics. They all have to have individual personalities. They all have to have a reason to interact. They all have to be balanced perfectly within these 10 pages, there has to be some sort of a plot, a beginning, middle, and end. Now, you know, they could all be stuck in an elevator, they could be on a bus, whatever. Now, I'm going to have my class, my fictitious fictitious class, you're going to write these 10 pages, and then you're going to rewrite them, and then you are going to rewrite them, and I don't want you turning them into me until they are perfect and here's the key since there is no real teacher here you cannot slack off don't become a lazy writer be you have to be the hardest critic of your own work so write those turn pages with those five characters in that story until it is as perfect as perfect as possible it is it's ready to go that's actually not the homework the homework is this now cut five pages out of it and don't lose anything That will show you how to layer your characters, how sometimes the lack of words mean more than words. That will show you how to imply things. That will show you how to play with the psychology of your reader because it forces you to do it. Now, by telling you that that was the whole point of it, a lot of people would say, oh, I get it. But believe me, if you actually do that, when you're done, when you have those five pages in front of you, you will go, holy crap, I just became a much better writer.
0: Well, that's great, and I'm going to invite everybody listening to this to go ahead and to send these to me, and then I will go ahead and forward them to your instructor. (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> <laughs> whoever that is did I mention my name did you mention my name nobody mentioned my name
0: mm.
1: <laughs> anyway if you no, if I, you
0: do this drill and send it in to me then I will forward them to, to Steve oh
1: this is like the soupy sales thing where he told all the kids to uh, you know go to your parents bed table pull out those green pieces of paper and send them to me <laughs> and then they did <laughs> um but no seriously it's um one of the things uh, I rail against is lazy writing And lazy writing is when the writing serves the writer, but not the reader or the story. And when you are forced to cut things back, you're forced to dedicate yourself to um, the difficult writing. And that's what makes writing uh, really good. Now, you know, the the comparison about the way L. Ron Hubbard wrote. One of my favorite writers and people I've worked with, uh, the way she writes is she plays chess. She stares at a screen. And I can I can tell what she's doing is she's, whatever the next beat is, the next dialogue, she's tracking the entire thing out in her mind like a chess game. And if it doesn't go where she wants, she puts all the pieces back and she does it again. And she will stare at a screen and then will type, dat, 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 and then continue staring at the screen because she plays that game and it works. She's a mm-hmm. wonderful writer. She and I have written together a, a few times, Babs Krehowski, we've written together a few times. And our styles on the page very much match. I am completely the opposite in that regard. I'm out playing in the yard. I'm talking to the assistants. I'm literally at sometimes, you know, playing bowling in the hallways. I'm doing everything else. But in the back of my mind, the back of my mind is still working on this. And then suddenly I will turn to somebody and I will just say, okay, I gotta go. And I sit down, put my hands on that keyboard, and boom, I'm into the zone, and it just all comes out. Right. Two completely different processes, and yet um, she and I write uh, well enough to work together, which anybody who's written with a partner knows how difficult that is. So, So the point being is that everybody has their own specific style, and I can tell you how to write, and then you can have somebody on here at your next podcast who will say 180 degrees of the opposite. We're both correct because those are our styles. That's right. Finding, finding your own style is the, is the key to it. That's the thing. And not being afraid of it. I'll bet you at a certain point um, in Hubbard's life and other people like that, uh, people, other people who do the staring off and then boom, you know, he sees the whole movie in front of his face and just types it out. There was probably a point in his life where he said, I'm not sure whether anybody else will like this. Should I bother doing it? And then there was that little voice that probably slapped him, the way that little voice slapped me when I said only special people do this, and said, "Well, I'm I'm going to do it anyway." Right. You know. And boom, there it is.
0: That's one thing that's really good, also, when we have the winners come out with all of our uh, judges, because every judge has their own way, and they all know that. And so when they when they teach the the winners, like. You've got Tim Powers that will very methodically go through on three by five cards, making notes and laying them out on his living room floor. And <laughs> Kevin Anderson, who take who hikes up all the different mountains around I the know. United States around around ca- Colorado, and dictates he dictates his stories. <laughs> I know. <laughs> you know, it's just amazing the difference. You know what happens in Larry Niven. You know he's. He has his own style, and some people talk about how to write hard sci-fi, how to write, you know, all these different things. And everybody's got their own different style. So, the the takeaway that the that the winners get is that okay, use what works for you. You got to develop your own style. And some of our judges, say, you know, throw away your first million words, which is what when Hubbard started, he used to. Um, he was in La Jolla, California, when he first started. He would, you know, he said, okay, he needed to. This is during the depression stuff he needed to make a living, and he wanted to write because he was also doing a bunch of research and um so he traveled a lot. he was writing doing his fifty thousand words a month, but he was he was um sometimes a hundred thousand, but he would read the pulp magazines, find out what was selling what was what was about it, and then he'd write stories and submit, and he just kept on doing it until he started selling. He did it several weeks and then he started selling. So he could get like, okay, what worked and what didn't work. And then he started, he started with this adventure fiction. Then he moved. Mm-hmm. That was it. Because the last stuff he wrote was science fiction and fantasy. That was right. the last genre when, um, when Street and Smith pulled him in to meet John W. Campbell to do it. So yeah. I think that's an important thing that people realize too, is you don't have this, I think everybody agrees on the persistence. That's like, right. you know, you've got to do that. You can't, you can't give up. You can't quit. You got to keep on going on it and just, if. You know, there's no such thing as as fail only failing to continue, right? You know, you know, so that's that's something that I think is pretty much universal from all of the different judges. But what you said there, you know, it's like it's the product and what's your method and what's somebody else's method is is you know what really counts on this stuff.
1: Yeah, and also a lot of these people you mentioned, mm-hmm. um, many times readers will look at authors as being almost godlike because they. They are basically acting as gods in in these worlds they create. They are people. They are human beings. In a bathroom. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) And and funny, the story I told you earlier about sitting there across from somebody who was like, you know, eating um, scrambled eggs. And suddenly it just hit me. Oh, my God, I grew up on your stuff. That was Larry Niven. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) I had met him at the science fiction, uh, one of the clubs out here. And afterwards, we all went out to have breakfast. And we sat there and he just started talking about some of the things with Ringworld. And you know he's he's eating his breakfast and everything, and we're chatting, and then just suddenly, part of me goes, "You are actually talking to Larry Niven! Yeah. Oh my god!"
0: <laughs> yeah, it's funny when we when we have each year when we fly out the winners, and they we have a, our, a dinner, we call it our barbecue, where the winners meet the judges, and the winners are like they're just so like geeked out, fan geeked out, you know, like, oh, my it's Larry Niven, or that was before with Jerry Purnell, or some of these different, you know, mm-hmm. judges that we've had, Ann McCaffrey, and said, would you like to meet them? I said, yeah, because they they want to see you, you know, so then we introduced yeah. them, and they found out they, they talked to me, they were like, they treated me as an yeah.
1: equal, they're just like, right. it's amazing. Yeah. One of the things that that I've done whenever I've made a convention appearances, especially for Xena, because uh-huh. Zena was such a popular show. Um, I'm not somebody who stays behind the stage. That's just not me. Right. Uh, I like to get out. I mean, you know, I was a geek at a time. I'm still a bit of a geek here. So, um, you know, the nerd culture, the geek culture, you as my people. So I am known for just hanging out. Mm -hmm. And what was interesting is that at all the different conventions, whenever we had a new Xena convention, there would always be a group of people who it was their first convention. And I could tell who they were because as I walked down the hallway, They would turn to each other in whispers, and they would point. That's Mr. Sears. I think that's Stephen Sears. I think that's Stephen Al Sears over there. He's the one who wrote that, that, that. They'll do like that. And what I do when I hear that is I immediately walk over to them, and I will say, okay, we either hug it out or we just talk. What do you want to do? And we end up in a conversation so that the next convention, when I walk down the hallway, the reaction I get from them is, hey, Steve, which is what I prefer. Right. And all, I call them the the old-timers who've gone to all those conventions, they know me. They're all friends of mine. It literally is, hey, Steve, because, you know, I'm just me. Uh, Larry Niven is just Larry Niven. Incredibly talented. But you know what? I've had breakfast with him. (laughs) (laughs) He's a cool person, but he has breakfast. (laughs) (laughs) Um, you know, Kevin J. Anderson, I can tell you stories about Kevin J. Anderson, which, um, I think the, um, statute of limitations are over. I probably could, uh, but no, Kevin and I are friends. And, you know, when we hang out and we geek over our own things, when we hang out at comic con and stuff like that, people who walk up, they realize, you know, we started from somewhere. We started from where they were. We had a passion, they have a passion. We had a perseverance, hopefully they have a perseverance. But we're not the godlike figures. However, uh, we are uh, merchandising figures, so by all means, buy our products.
0: <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So, I mean, I know you mostly because of your your TV series that you wrote for. Do you have any stories or short fiction or any other books that... Um, if anybody wants to be able to look you up to read something that you've written, do
1: you have anything that. You know, I've got, I've got things that are coming out. It's interesting that um, I've been doing television and uh, film, it's uh, development work. The vast majority of what happens in the screenwriting and television world uh, are things that people never see. Uh, the vast majority of the money that moves around are in development deals. So I've been fortunate that, you know, I haven't, had, I haven't produced a show on the air for, God, 10, 15, 15 years, something like that. But my work since then has been all in development, mostly paid, thank you very much, studios, but also my own personal development. I started moving into starting to writing prose. Uh, again, for the fun of it, why not give it a shot? It'll be kind right. of cool. So at the moment, um, the only book I have published right now is my book about working as a television writer, which is called The Non-User-Friendly Guide, for aspiring TV writers. It's on Amazon. I wrote it. It's mostly anecdotes. It is not to teach anybody how to write. It's to basically tell you, you know, kind of how to survive in this business. But I started writing uh, novels based on original concepts plus on some old screenplays, as every screenwriter will do. Uh, I've got like three of those in the works right now. But I also started writing uh, short stories for anthologies. I have uh, one that is a uh, 2 is coming out in a new anthology called Jeff Sturgeon's Cities of the Future and um, it's, uh, it's basically all set in a post-apocalyptic time when cities literally float you know, the, the earth is completely dry and destroyed and they float and it's the interactions the trade, the wars, all this kind of stuff and the writers involved with that I don't, don't even know how I got included seriously though, no. Kevin is one of the writers uh, for example, Jody Lanai is also one of the writers on that so that anthology will be coming out fairly soon um, I've had a f- cup, uh, at least one story written in um, the Book of the Month Club anthology, Woe and Wonder, and I've got I've got invitations to write some short stories for at least three upcoming anthologies, which I can't talk about right now because I don't I don't like to talk about things until I have contracts. Right. Uh, uh, but at the same time, the novels that I'm writing are being slightly de- derailed because of the <laughs> because of the film. In- television stuff that i've got going the um graphic novel that kevin j anderson and i wrote together called stalag x um we um have that uh as a shopping arrangement um with uh, fairly well I, actually one of my favorite directors um who is taking it around i'm always kind of reluctant because it's a shopping deal to say who it is but he is um he, without using direct names, he is of the level of you know, somebody who would direct in, in a, the Marvel universe or the DC universe or or any of, and he loves to work with authors. Um, so we have that deal going on. Uh, plus I have um, another couple of um, option deals that are in various stages of progress. Now, whether they end up being f- filmed or produced, again, that's the next level. Right. But I'm trying to get more material out there of my own. And as a final word on this, the short stories I have been writing, I haven't decided exactly what I'm going to do. I've got two stories sty- shy of a collection. When I have those two stories finished, I'm either going to self-publish it for the fun of it. I just kind of want to see what that experience is like. I'm, uh, you know, as, as Kevin said, when he and I wrote together the first time, he said, get ready for those pennies to come rolling in. <laughs> uh, so it's not about the money. Uh, or I may push this with some of the um, publishers I've made connections with. My deficit is that I'm not an established author, so collections are usually collections from established authors. But I do, admittedly, I have a fairly interesting resume in another medium. For sure. So you know, so we'll see. But uh, yeah, I'm I'm moving much more into the prose area. I'm really really digging it.
0: Well, that's great. That's really good. And I really appreciate you taking this time here to, to talk today because I think a lot of people. The whole idea of writing isn't just writing a short story or writing a novel. A writer writes, and absolutely, I haven't really addressed this area of screenwriting, and so I'm just—I'm so thankful that I've had this. That finally it sunk through my skull that oh my gosh, Stephen Sear's, you know,
1: <laughs> to uh, well, yeah, well, most of most of um, what hopefully your um, listenership will also take from this is that uh, I am a screenwriter primarily, television writer specifically. Mm-hmm. However, they should notice that most of what we talked about was not about the specifics of screenwriting, television writing, as far as story is concerned. It was about story. It was about characters. It was examples of people who have made their storytelling work. Because the truth is, you're only talking about different formats and businesses. And you do need to understand those. Mm -hmm. But there's a reason why a novel is written in a certain format. There's a reason why a screenplay is written in a certain format. But if you don't have the core of what we've been talking about, um, the way that, uh, you know, again, Larry Niven, Kevin J. Anderson, uh, Todd McCaffrey, um, L. Ron Hubbard, the way we all approach this, there's a commonality in there. It's about story. It's about character. It's about creating worlds that never existed with characters who have never been born and putting them into environments and situations that you can only dream of. And we allow you to experience it.
0: Well, that's very well stated there. So that's good, and that's absolutely correct. So again, thank you very much, Stephen. And thank you for listening. Subscribe to the Writers of the Future podcast wherever you get your podcasts. The Writers of the Future podcast is available on the United Public Radio Network, as well as SoundCloud, iTunes, Google Play, Pocket Cast, Stitcher, Player FM, iHeart, and Spotify. Writers and illustrators of the future are contests created by L. Ron Hubbard to provide a means for the aspiring writer and artist to be seen and acknowledged. It is free to enter and open to new and amateur short story writers and artists of science fiction or fantasy. Again, thank you very much, Stephen.
1: Absolutely. Thank you.